Welcome back to our summer series covering the great talks and seminars from Revive, our annual festival. We're moving on now to recap some of the great seminars from the weekend. This first one is from Glenn Scrivener on faithfulness and culture. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. Uh, I am Glenn Scrivener. I'm from Speak Life. And uh, I'll just talk about Speak Life as people make their way in because it's okay if you talk over that. Um, Does anyone listen to the Speak Life podcast? Few people? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you don't, you're very welcome to bring out your phone, go to your podcatcher of choice, and select Speak Life podcast. We'd love to serve you in that way. Or YouTube. Does anyone watch us on YouTube? Maybe sometimes? People have seen a Speak Life video before. Uh, We believe that what you love, you share. And so, We think that from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said that, so it must be true. Matthew 12, verse 34. So we want to fill your heart with Jesus to equip you to overflow to your friends and family and to share without shame. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he says that because the temptation is to be ashamed of the gospel. And so we want to equip you to share without shame and to have all sorts of resources up your sleeve so that you can just say to a friend after you've had a great conversation, can I flick you a link to? And then what are you gonna flick them a link to? Um, We're building up all sorts of resources. We've got a thing called 321, which is an evangelistic book, and it's a course, and it's also an online resource that's coming out in the autumn, and we'd love you to get excited about that so you could flick the link to other people. We are all about loving Jesus and sharing Jesus. We also have an internship. Actually, we don't call it an internship, but students. We have people come to us for 10 months, and uh, some of them are just out of school. Some of them are just out of university. Some of them are in their 30s and have families, but they come to us, and we go on mission together. We study together, and we make media together to bless the church and reach the world. So if your interests are in theology and mission and creativity, we think we've got a cool little overlap going on at Speak Life, and you can spend 10 months in Eastbourne, the Sunshine Coast. My Australian family thinks it's hilarious that Eastbourne is called the Sunshine Coast. I call it the Unshine Coast, which is unfair, and I'm repentant about that, but not really. You can come to Eastbourne, or you could come just for like a week. We've got intensives where you can come to us for a Monday to Friday. The next one is in September, starting September the 18th, or you could just come to us for a day of the intensive. Check us out on the website, and you can figure that stuff out. Right, we are thinking about this title, okay? Everyone Believes. I hope this helps you to be faithful in the culture. That's the title for the seminar, isn't it? And is it okay if I go to 6.15? Is that what you're expecting? Yeah? You can leave before then, that's fine. I won't take it personally. Um, We'll go to 6.15 and we'll think about being faithful in the culture and I want to equip you with tools to see the culture through Jesus-shaped lenses and to be able to speak into the culture with Jesus-shaped words. And here is the first thing you need to know. You need to know that all your friends, your family and your work colleagues, the guys you went to school with, they are all believers every single one of them. Now, that can be a shock to Christians, and it certainly can be a shock to non-Christians. I have a friend, I'm gonna call her Sally. Uh, She once wrote a letter to me. That's how old I am. I met Sally at university in the 1900s. (laughs) We used to write letters back then. And uh, Sally 
wrote me a letter and she said, uh, I hope you'll realize, Glenn, that I could never be a believer. And the idea that Sally has in her mind is, I think, a little bit like Star Wars. You know how in Star Wars, some people have the force and they have it really strongly. And other people do not have the force. And in episodes one, two, and three, remember they went back and they tried to give a biological explanation for the force. Do you remember this, this nonsense, okay? Because we don't believe in the woo of kind of mind control and ESP and all that kind of stuff. No, we believe in midi-chlorians. Do you remember this nonsense? <laughs> and that was supposed to be the biological explanation for mind control and ESP. <laughs> oh, there are midi-chlorians in the blood. That makes sense, great. It just, just shows how we believe in a kind of a scientism, don't we? Anyway, some people have midi-chlorians in their blood and some people don't. Some people have the force and some people don't. Some people are believers, like me, and some people are not believers, like Sally, right? Wrong. Because Sally navigates her world by all sorts of intuitions and gut instincts and moral values that she has absolutely no grounding for whatsoever. They are, for want of a better word, beliefs. And she orients her whole life by these beliefs. But she doesn't think of them as beliefs. She just thinks they're obvious, they're universal, they're natural. And she thinks, on the other hand, I've done this thing where I've taken a leap of faith, right? Remember Indiana Jones? This was the last crusade, wasn't it? The one with Sean Connery. And on the other side of that great unbreachable, un un uh, unbridgeable chasm is Sean Connery and, and Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, has to make it there somehow. And he hears the voice of his father saying, just believe, right? And so he summons up within him the force, the midichlorians, whatever it is. He's screwing up his stomach muscles. And remember, he has to take the leap of faith. And he puts his foot out into this chasm that it seems like there's no bridge. But because he's a hero, and because he has enough belief within himself, his foot goes thud onto solid ground, and it turns out there was an invisible bridge all along. Yay, Indy. Indy was able to believe. He's this special breed of human. And I think my friend Sally, and probably your friends too, look on you as this strange breed, and you manage to believe. And sometimes they look on you with envy and think that you've hit the jackpot, and sometimes they look on you with pity and they think they've dodged a bullet because you're a faith head and they're not. Is that how belief works? Is that how life works? Absolutely not. Let's have a look at this. this is Just stepping in here, they did watch a video on the big screen. So if you'd like to watch that, you can find the link in the show notes. Back to the talk. Cool. And that's just another example of some of the videos that we make that was made by one of our students from last year. And if you want to get in on making that kind of fun media, come and join us uh, at the Foundry at Speak Life. But that is the argument. The argument is that things like equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress, um, none of these are common sense. None of these are derived mathematically or logically. Um, they are faith commitments. And at that point, the Sallies of this world say, no, Glenn, these are the results of secular humanism. You've heard the phrase, secular humanism. Secular means from a non-religious point of view. Humanism means all these great humanistic values, seeing the great worth and dignity of every individual. 
And a lot of people think, well, you can just have secular humanism and you don't need Christianity in order to get all these great things. But what I want to do is pull apart those two words, secular and humanist, and figure out if those two things actually go together or not. I don't think they do. You see, the, the secular worldview, if, you, if you're going to leave the Bible and religious faith behind you, the secular view is that we are very clever apes, but we also believe in equality. So we're very clever apes who have inviolable human rights. Right. Oh, does that make sense? Did we get these equal human rights from that story? from the godless story, the secular story. And I want to say, uh, historically, we did not get to equality from the godless story. And I want to make the logical case, we could not get there from a purely godless story. And I want to say, secular, humanist, pick one. See, we can't just be very evolved apes with inviolable human rights. Doesn't work. Or think about compassion. We are the heirs of a brutal evolutionary history, and we should be kind, right? Why? Why should we be kind? Why shouldn't we follow the cruelty that got us here? Why should we not honor our creator? Our creator is selfish, why shouldn't we be? We got here via dominance, why should we now live by compassion? And I wanna say, secular humanist pick one. We didn't get to the compassion story through the godless story. Historically, that's not the case. And I think logically, you don't get there from the secular story. Or think about consent, okay? The secular story is that you and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals. So let's honor one another's sexual boundaries at all times, okay? You can tell I went to university in the 1900s, can't you, okay? <laughs> A popular cultural reference from 20 years ago, okay. You and me, baby, we ain't nothing but mammals, so consent is absolutely vital to sex. Did we, did we get there from the secular story? We didn't get there historically from the secular story, and I want to say logically, we don't get there. Uh, enlightenment. Again, we are the heirs of a brutal evolutionary history, and then the humanist value is we should spread our goals, we should, we should further our ends only through persuasion and never through force, never through coercion, never through violence. It's, it's education and persuasion, not, co not coercion and force. And okay, I, I believe in that great stuff, but did we get there from the secular story? I wanna say we, didn't, we did not historically get to this great enlightenment value from the secular story. Science, okay. Um, our minds have evolved purely in order to survive, in order to pass on our genes to the next generation. And apparently, we can trust them to plumb the mysteries of the cosmos, right? The brains of Homo sapiens here, clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling around the sun in this unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy, um, somehow, that's what our brains are, our brains, that have evolved purely in order to survive and pass on our genes to the next generation. Those brains can be trusted to plumb the depths of the mysteries of the cosmos. Now, the scientific revolution did not come from that story. 
The scientific revolution came from people who believed that we are made in God's image and we have therefore some chance of wrapping our heads around the mysteries of the cosmos and much more. The scientific revolution from 500 years ago sprang out of Christian soil for Christian reasons. You can get into that in the book if you want to know more about that. Freedom. We are DNA replicators. And we've gotten here via survival of the fittest, but somehow we also believe the freedom story. And, and therefore, pursuing a master race is an unconscionable evil, right? We've gotten here via survival of the fittest, but if anyone tries to pursue a master race, they are the worst. Well, why? Not according to that story, you're not the worst. You must, your moral imagination has not been shaped by that story. Your moral imagination recoils from applying the lessons of biology to sociology. You're, you recoil from that. You, just because there is survival of the fittest, you don't think the fittest should survive, do you? If you do, you're a moral monster, which only goes to show we don't live by that story, actually. In this department, as we think about these moral issues, we're actually living by a Christian-ish story rather than a secular story. Progress. We are clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction, and progress, things are gonna get better. Like, why? On what basis? Okay? And so what I wanna say to the Sallies of this world is that you've got cognitive dissonance. Do you know what cognitive dissonance is? It's, it's where you've got two competing ideas in your head, and they just, they coexist happily because the contradiction is never pointed out. And so we're always, we're always living with all sorts, of, all sorts of cognitive dissonances, but when they're pointed out, it can be a real agony to recognize you've got one story of the world over here, a different story of the world that you navigate your life by. There's a cognitive dissonance, and really coming to Christ is about easing that cognitive dissonance and saying, actually, you, you live your life over here. For all that you tell me, Sally, for all that you tell me that this is where you live and you just navigate the world via reason and evidence and you just follow biology, you don't. Nobody does, only sociopaths do, right? There's a very small proportion of people who actually live out the moral implications of the secular worldview. So what is the Western imagination? The Western imagination is this weird straddling of a secularized Christian story. And what we're trying to do is ease people's cognitive dissonance. And what I wanna do is just focus in on uh, two of the values, the first two of the values that I mentioned of, of the seven, and just show to you that your beliefs and Sally's beliefs have been shaped by the Bible. They have been, already. Everybody already believes in equality. Um, you might know this statement from 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and uh, Thomas Jefferson begins the declaration by saying, we hold these truths to be, this is what Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable. That's what Jefferson first said, and you're all going, oh, that's not the version I remember. Well, that's because there was an edit. But to begin with, Thomas Jefferson said, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
So Thomas Jefferson was very clear that the reason we believe in equality is because of the Bible. It's because we've inherited it from Christian faith. What do I mean by equality? I mean we believe that every single individual is the moral equal of every other individual in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of God. While you might have less money than some people and more money than some people, that does not mean you are better than some and worse than others in a moral sense. You are worth the same as everybody else and there is an inviolable worth and dignity to you that is the same as for everybody, whether they be the prime minister or whether they be the street sweeper or whatever other you know, hierarchical claims you can make. We hate hierarchy these days, don't we? We, we, we hate that Glenn even talked about the street sweeper, don't we? Right? We, we hate that Glenn even went there. Why would he talk about street sweepers? They're worth the same as everybody else, aren't they? Exactly, we all believe in equality, right? We all believe in this, this sacred thing. But Thomas Jefferson sent the Declaration of Independence to his friend Benjamin Franklin. He said, do you have any edits to make? And Franklin, among a couple of other minor tweaks, Franklin just put a line through sacred and, undeni and, sacred and undeniable. He thought, oh, we don't want to found the American Republic on religion. We want to found it on reason. So let's just call equality self-evident. And it's catchier as well, isn't it? Sacred and undeniable. Ah, too wordy. We need concision here, okay. It's just self-evident. And so they went with the edits, but it's bonkers, isn't it? What is, what is self-evident about equality? Is there anything self-evident about equality? If you went back to an ancient person, who had not been Christianized in any way, shape, or form. You, you ask an Aristotle, okay, great Greek philosopher, okay? You show him two different people. Aristotle's gonna say, yeah, that guy is richer than that guy. That guy is a man, and that's a woman. That is a citizen, and that is a barbarian. That is a master, that is a slave. That person is strong, that person is weak. That person is ec economically fruitful, that person not so much. Right? In what, in what way are they equal? And what is self-evident about the fact that all people are equal? If you take any two people and you measure them by any one metric, what are you going to discover? You're going to discover vast inequalities. So what is this magical thing called equality? You see, equality is not self-evident. And all the values that I've been speaking about, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, the, the doability of science, freedom, progress, all these things are not self-evident. They're not widespread among the civilizations of history. They are beliefs, and they've come to us through the Jesus revolution. In what way have they come to us? Well, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Stunning to compare Genesis with the ancient Near Eastern mythologies of the day. In those mythologies, creation comes out of like punch-ups between the gods and there's like an exile of a naughty deity or creation is the, the body of a dead monster or there's been some cosmic storm blowing through and we are the debris. You read Genesis 1, and it's just this cathedral-like structure of God very patiently unfolding his purposes, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. 
You go to the ancient Near Eastern texts, and there's all sorts of stuff about the gods make man to be a slave for the gods, to save the gods from work. And in all those myths, mankind is made out of bloodshed. It's usually quite grotesque and gruesome. It's made out of bloodshed, made for servanthood, slavery, really. You come to the Bible, you've got this cathedral-like structure. It was good, it was good, it was very good. And the best thing of all, humanity, king and queen of all creation, man and woman together in the image of God. In other texts, sometimes... Uh, other religions would, would paint a king as maybe like an image of God because earthly tyrants are pretty good lookalikes for some of these heavenly despots. But in the Bible, male and female, everybody in the image of God. And Genesis 9 repeats that it's not just an Adam and Eve thing, it's an all of creation thing. We are all equally in the image of God. You come through into the New Testament, the image of God, Christ, comes and he plunges the depths of our hierarchy, he dies the slave's death, he rises up again and he invites us into a family meal in which everyone is brother and sister and nobody is Lord except him. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in the church, there is to be this great equality. Now, in the early church, they did not, therefore, go to, you know, gopetition.com and try and get people to lobby Caesar to try and get equality into the Roman Empire. That's not really the way the Roman Empire worked, because they didn't yet have democracy. Why does democracy come along? Well, this Christian story develops to the point where you end up with Western liberal democracies, but... The way the church rolled out equality was first in Christ, you have this good thing, then in the church, imperfectly, we try to live out this pilot plant of the kingdom, and then over centuries, some of these things get leavened out into the culture. Remember how in Matthew 13, Jesus says that the kingdom will be like yeast that works its way through dough, leavens its way through dough. That's a slow process or like a mustard seed that grows into the greatest plant. That's a slow process, but these things take time. How did Christianity get understood by those first, second, third century Romans who are hearing about equality? Celsus was one of the fiercest critics of the church. He said the radical error in Jewish and Christian thinking is that it is anthropocentric. Anthropos meaning man, humanity, and so the, the great problem with Judaism, Christianity, the Old and New Testaments, the great problem is it's far too humanistic, far too humanistic. They say that God made all things for man, but this is not at all evidence. And if Genesis discusses this you know, disgusting truth that God honors man above all else, I mean, what about the New Testament? God becomes man? It's a disgusting truth. It's a self-evidently self-evidently atrocious truth. It's, it's morally imbecilic to think this. In no way is man better in God's sight than ants and bees. If you want to think about a, a modern critic of the church, uh, you can think of Yuval Noah Harari, uh, author of books like uh, Sapiens and Homodeus. These books have sold tens of millions of copies. Um, he is very clear that the reason we believe in equality and human rights 
is because of the Christian story. Let's follow his logic. Hey, uh, there's another video here. So if you look in the show notes, you can watch that clip on YouTube. I show this to my non-Christian friends all the time, and, and it's very interesting to see the, the shift in conversation and, and, and the ways people recognize that they have been standing on a belief when they thought they were standing on reason and evidence. It's very interesting to see people think they navigate their life according to reason and evidence. Nobody actually does. We all inhabit various stories of the world, and Christians are not saying why don't you just pretend in human rights for a bit? Why don't you just pretend that there's a God who loves you as a unique individual that you are and values you, and, and that would help you, you know, live in life? Because that would be to have cognitive dissonance again, wouldn't it? That would be, okay, I, I know that the foundational truth about me is that I'm simply a clever ape, but I'm going to believe in this story about human rights. And, and actually, Christianity comes along and says, you don't have to have the dissonance. There's a story that's true. There's a true story that puts ground beneath your feet. You don't need to leap to faith in Jesus. What you really need to do is to look where you're standing and figure out, oh my goodness, I've got fresh air underneath me, unless the Jesus. With Jesus, there is a grounding for these moral intuitions, these gut instincts, these beliefs. Tom Holland wrote a big fat book called Dominion a few years ago, and uh, it's one of those books that looks great on the shelf, doesn't it? Looks six. I often, I, I often say to people, oh yeah, because have you read Dominion? And people are like, yeah, I started it. Yes, yeah, like, like, it's on the shelf, and I, in a, in a sense, that's kind of why I, why I wrote, you know, The Air We Breathe, but, but now I ask people, you know, have you read The Air We Breathe? I started it. But you know, just, how short do you want books, people? <laughs> But he, he wrote this 650-page book that just charts all this kind of stuff. And at one stage, he says, that all men had been created equal and endowed with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not remotely self-evident truths. That most Americans believed they were owed less to philosophy than to the Bible, to the assurance given equally to Christians and Jews, to Protestants and Catholics, to Calvinists and Quakers, that every human being was created in God's image the truest and ultimate seedbed of the American Republic, no matter what some of those who had composed its founding documents might have cared to think, Benjamin Franklin, was the book of Genesis. Right? Um, we are standing on this big, tottering pile of Bibles, and we didn't recognize that. And therefore, it's frustrating when people just say, I, I just live by reason and evidence. You don't. You would be a monster if you did. We'll, we'll see that in a second. Um, that's equality. Let's think about um, compassion, okay? Compassion is, you know, like on Facebook where you see those memes and it says, the, you know, um, a society is best that looks after its weakest members. Something like that, that'll get a lot of likes, won't it? A society is best that looks after its weakest members. And we have this value that the weak, the poor, the marginalized are not to be excluded, not to be trampled down, but to be elevated and lifted up and included. What a beautiful thing, right? We, we believe that, don't you? If you don't believe that, you get kicked off Facebook really quickly, okay? Because we're, we're all the hashtag be kind people now, aren't we? As a side note, it is very interesting how all these values, they began as the fruit of the kingdom they became cultural values in the West. They now exist as slogans, don't they? <laughs> Hashtag be kind. 
You ever notice how some of the vituperatively most cruel people you've ever met in your life <laughs> finish their tweets with hashtag be kind? Anyway, it's, it's gone from fruit of the kingdom to cultural value to slogan. Even worse, to hashtag, right? But compassion, we kind of believe in compassion so that an ancient proverb that everybody pre-Christian would assent to, we recoil from. Ancient proverbs have been found on uh, lots of different uh, sort of tombstones type thing, uh, burial plots. Uh, every day you should do something to help your friends and to harm your enemies, right? And all of us in this room go, yeah, every day you should do something to help your friends and to harm your enemies, you monster! How dare you? And we just recoil from that second half. But why? That's your Christianity that's recoiling at that point. Okay, even if you're not a Christian, your recoiling from harming your enemies is a very Christian thing. Because, look, if it's survival of the fittest, therefore it's sacrifice of the weakest, isn't it? And then Jesus comes along, and he, the fittest, is sacrificed for we, the weakest, so that we, the, we, that we, the weakest, might survive, and not just survive, but thrive and pass on his compassion revolution to the world. It's a totally topsy-turvy kind of thing, but if you don't have the Jesus story, of course it's survival of the fittest and sacrifice of the weakest. And you might be kind to your kin, your family. On a good day, you might be kind to your clan, You'll try your best to be honorable to your tribe, but beyond your tribe? Man, squash those guys. Who, like, who needs those guys? And every day, of course what you would do, and this is, this is just ancient wisdom. This is unquestionable wisdom in pre-Christian and non-Christian societies. Of course it is. Help your friends harm your enemies. That's the way the world works, right? Nietzsche thought we should get back to these ancient proverbs. Um, he hated what Christianity had done to the West because he, he's, Christianity has done this compassion revolution, this pity revolution. He says pity on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. He said in the Antichrist, he said, the weak and ill-constituted shall perish and one shall help them to do so. Wow, wow. And he's just wanting to live over here. Nietzsche is just saying, I can solve your cognitive dissonance for you people. Just abandon that thing. Come over here. Live out the morality that would be suggested to you by survival of the fittest. Because if the fittest do survive, then the fittest should survive, right? Note what it is that's recoiling within you. That's your Christianity that's protesting at the moment. And Nietzsche was very clear, it's, it's Christianity that has done a number on us. It's, it's made us value and lift up the weak. When just think where we could be if we cut loose from the weak and ascended to become supermen, overmen. Just think of that, right? And it's Christianity that is holding us back. That's what Nietzsche thought. God on the cross. Hitherto there had never and nowhere been such boldness in inversion, nor anything at once so dreadful, questioning, and questionable as this formula. It promised the transvaluation of all ancient values. That's what the cross is. God on a cross is the transvaluation of all 
ancient values, because ancient values had a dominance hierarchy. The gods are at the top, then there's the emperor, then there's the nobles, then there's the citizens, then there's the barbarians, then there's the slaves, right at the bottom, okay? That's the dominance hierarchy. And then God on a cross is the one from the very top plumbing the absolute depths. Crucifixion was the slave's death. It was totally the slave's death, reserved for that class of people. In ancient Roman law, it was all about what class of person you were, how the law applied to you. There is a class of persons who could be crucified. There's a class of persons who couldn't be crucified. You know this from the book of Acts, don't you? You know, Paul is about to get flogged. He's like, I'm the sort of person you're not allowed to flog. You remember that bit? I'm a Roman citizen. And they're like, oh, we almost treated this person equally to other people. They just recoil in. We almost treated this guy equally to other people. Oh, no, okay, you're the Roman citizen, so you can't get punished in this way. That's how Roman law worked, okay? They didn't believe in equality, and they certainly didn't believe in compassion. <laughs> and here comes Jesus dying the slave's death. He goes to the utter bottom of the social hierarchy. It's the best story in the world, isn't it? It's a true story, but it's the best story, isn't it? It's an unimprovable story, the Christian story. You could, not have, you could not have a higher figure who plunges to a deeper depth, could you? In order to have a greater effect on more people for a greater duration, right? It's an unimprovable story, isn't it, the Christian story? You could not have a higher figure plumb a deeper depth to have a greater impact on more people for a longer period of time. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ? Right? And this is the story that has absolutely built our world. And for 2,000 years, we've been thinking about that image. And an ancient person looks at that image, and if you ask them, where is glory? Where is greatness in that image? And they would think, well, if it's anywhere, it's the centurion, right? Enforcing Roman might, showing all rebels what happens to rebels. Where is greatness? Greatness is power exercised in order to crush the rebels who would disturb the, the peace of Rome, okay? And so where is greatness? Greatness is, is on that end of the spear. But for 2,000 years, we've been, it's the transvaluation of all values to think of God on the cross. We've been thinking about it for 2,000 years. You know what greatness looks like? It looks like the guy on the sharp end of the spear. Are you kidding me? It, lo it looks like the, the one who descended to the deepest depth to be a worm and not a man. Are you kidding me? Plunging the very deepest depths out of love, out of compassion. And greatness suddenly becomes associated with service, right? Glory is the glory of loving, and, and it's love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. And all of a sudden, you start to have this compassion revolution. And you know, that, that, that's kind of why, here, here's where it lands, okay. My neighbor, uh, my neighbor's come to Christ in the last six months, so, so beautiful. I could tell you all sorts of stories, but we don't have time. Um, one, of the, one of the very first conversations that started him on, on the road to Christian faith was, he was on Facebook, and he was watching a little video 
about compassion. And the hairs went up on the back of his neck. And he showed it to me, because like, we were in a terraced houses, we, got, we share a porch, he's a smoker, he's in rental accommodation, so he, it's, it's brilliant for evangelism. He has to be out there 25 times a day. <laughs> so, I'm talking to this guy multiple times a day, and one day he just shows me this video. And I couldn't find the exact video, so then I went onto YouTube just like this week to find the video, and I ended up falling down a YouTube hole, as you end up doing, and I found all sorts of videos that are just like this. This is a representative video um, that really started a conversation with my neighbor. Let's have a look. Hey, yeah, uh, the link for this video is also in the show notes. Yes! Don't you love that? That's storytelling, isn't it? And and like on storytelling, there's been a massive inversion. The transvaluation of all, of all values has happened in storytelling, hasn't it? Who is the hero here, right? It's not Hercules at the crossroads showing how brave and strong he is. You know, it's, it's the guy who is on the outside, the guy who is brought in and lifted up, and he scores the winner, and the roof is taken off. And so my friend shows me a video almost exactly like that. It wasn't that exact one, but he shows it to me, and he says, what do you make of that? And I was in tears. He had tears in his eyes. And, and it was like, and I just said, what do you think it is that we're responding to? Like, what, what, what is it? What, what is it about that? He said, I don't know. What do you think? And I said, well, you know, this is what I love about Jesus, okay? Jesus comes in in order to lift up the lowly, and, and we live in a world that's, that's just about dog eat dog and just got to get on top, and, and Jesus comes to the very bottom, right? And he dies for us when we're weak, and then he rises up again, and he, he wants us to pass on his love to the weak and the lowly and the poor, and, and it's not like in an instant scales fell from his eyes and he became a Christian. It's, it's just, that's just seed that you sow into a conversation at that point. I was like, you have this value. You have this gut instinct. Can we examine it just for a second? Can we ask, like, what is it that you're standing on in order to look to this beautiful vision? What you're standing on is either Jesus or it's thin air. And so I'll just finish with um, sentences up your sleeve. So I've gone so fast. I guess one takeaway is you could just buy my book, couldn't you? You could just, you could just do that, couldn't you? Maybe. Um, the children need shoes. They need shoes, people. Um, so, <laughs> not about blessing other people. I'm just, um, it all goes to Speak Life, just so you know. All royalties go to Speak Life. But sentences up your sleeve. These are like little bits of seed that you got in your pocket. And after you've done a lot of thinking about equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress, as you've figured out the moral intuitions, not only of yourself, but of your friends and neighbors, and you, as you start to interrogate what it is you're standing on as you have these experiences, you can just sow a little bit of seed in, well, that's what I love about Jesus. You know, he always goes to the poor and the weak and the marginalized. That's what I love about Jesus. And then you can tell even a Bible story about that. Or that's what I love about Christianity. It's, it's all about turning that dominance hierarchy on its head. The princes are cast down from their thrones and the lowly are lifted up, as Mary sings in, in Luke chapter 1. That's what I love about our church. 
You know, our, our church is really seeking to be this kind of place that lives out equality and compassion and all these other great values. Just little bits of seed that you can sow into your friends' lives. I told you I was going to go to 6.15, and guess what? It's 6.15, an evangelist that actually keeps his word. Oh, my goodness. Um, look, if you want to come and join us, Speak Life uh, year out, we'd love to see you. We'd love for you to catch up with us uh, at Speak Life as well. But uh, why don't I pray for us and uh, pray that we would just ourselves be glad of the Jesus revolution. And then we just want our friends to wish it were true. I want, I want us to be glad that it's true, and I want to make our friends and family wish that it was true and then show them that it is. So let's pray along those lines. Our great Father, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We love Jesus. We love that picture of the cross where he takes the spear. He, he does not dish out the dominance. He takes on himself the role of a servant and gives his life for the world. Father, by your spirit, make us glad for Jesus. Make us glad for his work in history. Make, his, make us glad for his work in our churches. Make us glad for his work in our hearts. Help us to know him, to love him, and give us opportunities to overflow with our friends and family, to show them the beauty, the glory, the grace and the truth of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And stay tuned for more great talks from Revive. See you next time.